my fellow fallible humans. Welcome to the Red Roof Recovery Show. This is a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. I'm your host, Tanya McIntyre. I'm here with you every week to share my experience around my own recovery from drugs and alcohol. Red Roof Recovery uses a variety of therapy tools to customize addiction recovery with evidence-based solutions, the latest scientific findings, inclusion, and non-judgment. I created Red Roof Recovery two years ago to provide not only a unique program for residential recovery, but to also develop a relapse prevention program. And all of these programs are based on the principles of CBT. That's cognitive behavior therapy, along with various other tools of therapy, because there are literally hundreds of tools of therapy available to help in recovery from addictions and other mental health disorders. The key is to find something that works for you, because we are all different animals. And once you find something that resonates with you, you grab onto that and do more of it, assuming, of course, it's something that's good for you. So on Red Roof Recovery, when I put the, uh, the whole concept of Red Roof Recovery together, uh, people kept asking me, you know, about the mission statement and what are the goals and the concepts. So I've actually, uh, I've given it some thought and I've put together uh, 10 goals of Red Roof Recovery I want to share with you because uh, people say, well, what is Red Roof Recovery? So this is a synthesis of material adapted from SMART. SMART is self-management and recovery training. I've been a facilitator with SMART since 2018. And it's also from my own work with Red Roof Recovery and my own journey of recovery since 2009. So I've put together 10 goals of Red Roof Recovery. Number one, we develop our motivation to abstain from harmful substance as substances and behaviors. Number two, we learn how to manage urges without acting upon them. Number three, we learn to notice and manage our thoughts. Four, we learn to notice and manage our feelings, moods, and emotions. Number five, we learn to notice and manage our behaviors. Six, we learn to let go of things beyond our control. Seven, we learn to accept ourselves unconditionally. Number eight, we learn to accept others unconditionally. Number nine, we learn to accept life unconditionally. And number 10, we maintain our practice, patience, and persistence to continue learning. So those are the 10 goals of Red Roof Recovery. On the last episode of Red Roof Recovery, we started to delve into the four keys of higher consciousness. Those four keys to higher consciousness are banish doubt, tame the ego, cultivate the witness, and shut down the inner dialogue. Tammy Bannon was here as a guest on the last episode, and as an NLP expert, she gave us some strategies to silence that inner dialogue, you know, that incessant chatter that just never shuts up. So today, I would like to delve into the banish all doubt idea. And I'm quite familiar with this emotion of doubt. What is doubt exactly? Well, doubt is the uncertainty of the truth. It's the uncertainty of the facts. And it's the uncertainty of the existence of something. I spent a couple of decades being immersed in doubt and fear. 
I actually came to call it the FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It was my job to create the FUD factor, in fact. I delivered the daily news with as many sensational headlines that I could come up with. Not only sensational headlines, but also embellished facts. I was a journalist back in the 80s when it was our job to perpetuate fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I don't think a lot has changed since that time. Um, I've been on a media fast, so to speak, since uh, the time I've left mainstream media. So what I have heard is that uh, it's pretty much the same, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So I'll just give you an example of what uh, the end of my career looked like. If there was a robbery or shooting in Toronto back in the 80s, the suspects were usually described as black in their 20s, average height, wearing jeans and a black hoodie. Well, of course, this described the majority of young black men in that city. And when I questioned this with my peers and supervisors, I was criticized and ostracized for suggesting that we were doing something unacceptable and questionable. I created tension in the newsroom. I quickly became unliked. I came to be known as someone who was difficult to work with. If I wanted to keep my job, it was clear that I was expected to go along to get along. And when I refused to read these profiling descriptions, I was admonished and my job was repeatedly threatened. And I was just one of the countless minions following orders and going along to get along. It was a vocation that literally chipped away at my soul toward the latter part of my career. And it was a career that fed my progressive addictions to drugs and alcohol. And that scale started to tip for me when I was one of the first Toronto reporters on the scene of the Swiss air crash at Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia back in 1998. And I come from that part of the country. So to return to what I once knew to be such a, a magical, serene area, and it had now become nothing more than a massive gravesite, it was devastating. And equally devastating was the dozens of reporters from all over the world at this scene of despair. To together with dozens of emergency vehicles and personnel, when I walked on the scene as I approached, I felt like I was going onto the, the movie set of a global disaster. It was surreal. And after spending a couple of days reporting on that devastation and grief, I had what I can only describe as a mental meltdown. I knew I had to switch gears and I had to find something positive to report or I felt like I was gonna snap. I remember it like it was yesterday. I had interviewed dozens of people over those couple of days and there was a common thread among everybody I talked to. They all wanted to open their hearts and their homes to all the people who would be arriving from overseas to gather what little remained of their loved ones. So I was touched by that and I decided to make that my story. I was standing in a telephone booth in downtown Halifax. <laughs> yes, it was 1998. So cell phones were just making an appearance on the market. They were about as big as my Yeti uh, water cup and heavy and very expensive. So very few people had them. So I was in the phone booth and after I finished my report, my news director came on the phone and she said, WTF, before WTF was even an acronym. Uh, what is this crap? She said, I want to see the blood and feel the pain. 
At that moment, I held the telephone receiver away from my ear to let that absorb, and I could actually hear uh, there was an audible click in my psyche when I heard that from her, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. But at that point, broadcasting had been my career for my entire adult life at that point. So I was frozen in fear about what would I do if I didn't do that? Who would I be? What would I call myself? <laughs> so I ended up staying in that career for another few years until I finally had the courage to walk away. And that happened in 2002 after then President George Bush declared an unsanctioned and illegal war on Iraq. I refused to perpetuate propaganda, and I was blacklisted in my industry as a result. Now, the tides have changed since that time. There are lots of journalists who eventually took a stand against a war that was started on lies, manipulation, and deception. Weapons of mass destruction have never been found. But lots of money and mass deception still quite prevalent in the Middle East with the political agenda of fear-mongering about the link to terrorism and people from the Middle East. Lots of profiling happening in major cities across Canada still around that. There are far more people killed by gun violence in America, though, than killed by terrorism. But nobody ever talks about that. No, no, no. Don't be talking about gun control. So the decision I made to leave an industry that defined me for so long wasn't easy. But what did make it easier was my realization that mainstream media has an agenda to perpetuate that FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And when we keep hearing sensational headlines and embellished facts, we start to believe that our world is indeed full of treachery and terrorism. We become frozen in this FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And when we're paralyzed by that FUD factor, what happens? Well, we make more pliable subjects to be complacent and obedient. We're seeing that now during this pandemic. We become socially conditioned to stay in jobs that don't pay us well or treat us well. We stay in relationships for all the wrong reasons, primarily family and money. Sometimes it can also be an unhealthy codependent addiction. We're, we're encouraged to become indebted to banks and credit card companies to feed consumerism and social expectations. You know, the square footage of new homes being built now has more than doubled in the past 50 years although we're at least now starting to see a trend toward more sustainable living with the tiny house movement. So that's pretty much the FUD factor in a nutshell. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We are immersed in it. We are smothered by it. So how do we handle living with that kind of an immersion in the FUD factor? We're learning about the four keys to higher consciousness. So how can we begin to banish doubt? We are now defined as the most stressed, depressed, overweight, over-medicated population in history. We are processing as human beings 60,000 thoughts every single day. And most of those thoughts are the thoughts that we had yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that. It runs in a loop non-stop. It's the negative narrative that runs in a loop in our mind and it never shuts up. And now we're spending about a third of our lives in front of a screen of some sort. So if we split our 24-hour day into those three eight-hour segments, 
it's likely that we're actually spending a lot more than a third of our lives in front of a screen. We're spending eight hours in, at, of work, likely in front of a screen, and then likely a few more hours in front of a computer at home or your phone. We're also exposed to 3,000 messages a day telling us that we're not good enough until we go out and buy something or take something to feel better. And we're exposed to an endless news cycle that perpetuates propaganda. So it's any wonder that we are considered to be the most stressed, depressed, overweight, overmedicated population in history. All organisms in nature can tolerate short-term stress. So an example, we see a deer getting chased by a coyote. The deer outruns the coyote. A few minutes later, it's grazing calmly in the grass. We humans, however, are now in a constant state of stress with our jobs, with our families, and lots of debt. Most North Americans are holding more debt than savings now, and it's keeping us trapped in a cycle of stress and addictions. So how can we affect positive change to our lives to reduce stress and improve our health and well-being? Well, I often say that it helps if you take the diet that really works. The diet is to watch, read, and listen to positive things and feel the joy that life can bring. You know, I followed countless mentors along my path of recovery, including a doctor called Joe Dispenza. Joe taught me the importance and challenge of transformation. When I made the decision to change careers and then later deal with my addictions, I had to learn a new way to live. I had to learn a new way to think, and I had to learn a new way to be. I learned to accept that my personality creates my reality. So I literally had to choose to become somebody else. The hardest part of that change was learning to stay with the feelings of discomfort, those heightened emotions, while my body and mind adjusted to not having drugs and alcohol to soothe the pains of life. As I've acquired new information over the years of my sobriety, I've acquired new thoughts, which paved the way for new choices, new healthy habits, and then new healthy behaviors. It's funny how one can just lead to the other. When I made the new behaviors part of my life, it led to new experiences, which created new emotions, which inspired new thoughts. It's a process of evolution that helps me sustain my sobriety, and it takes a persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help myself. In the, the rooms of recovery, I still go to AA meetings. You'll often hear me say, AA saved my life and smart gave me my life back. So in rooms of recovery, when you are with your peers who are in the same boat as you, all recovering from addictions, and it doesn't matter what you're recovering from addictive-wise, it all tickles that same part of the brain. So we are literally all in the same boat. And in those rooms, early in my recovery, which started in 2009, I used to hear people say, it works when you work it. And I used to roll my eyes and say, oh, I hate that. I don't want to have to work. I want it to come easy. I want the pain to go away with just a pill or a shot. My motto used to be, take the diet that really works, a media fast. Don't watch, read, or listen to news and feel how much your life improves. But then a few years later, I started to recognize that I was actually giving attention, energy, and focus 
to what I didn't want. You know, I'm a, I'm a wordsmith now, so how I'm using my language around my life and addiction and recovery is, I think, imperative to how I'm facing life and recovery. So I changed the words. The words are now watch, read, and listen to positive things and feel the joy that life can bring. And our diet is more than what we eat. It's what we watch. It's what we read. It's what we listen to. And it's also the company we keep. We become the company we keep. So it's important to keep the company of people who are lifting you up. So why is it so hard for us to change? Why can't we as strong personalities overcome addictions easily? Because everybody I know in the rooms of AA and other addiction recovery programs, we are all very strong personalities. So why does it sometimes take disaster to motivate us to change our behavior? It doesn't make any sense. Well, scientific studies have demonstrated that we can learn and change either in a state of pain and suffering or in a state of joy and inspiration. Mm. So wouldn't it be nice to move toward that joy and inspiration instead of ending up in a state of pain and suffering? So I've followed several tools of therapy on my path of recovery. And one that clicked with me, of course, is CBT. I talk about it on every show, Cognitive Behavior Therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy is not difficult. It's thinking. It's just questioning our thoughts. It's a thinking therapy. It's an approach to recovery that uses three main principles. One, our positive and negative feelings do not result from what happens in our lives, but rather from our thoughts about what's happening or what's happened to us. Number two, depression and anxiety result from distorted, misleading thoughts. Basically, the stories we're often telling ourselves are simply not true. And our beliefs are often developed by false narratives. And number three, when we change the way we think, we can change the way we feel. And this can usually happen quickly and without drugs. Uh, a great book that you can read on that specific topic is from one of my favorite mentors, Dr. David Burns. He wrote a book called Feeling Good. And it's the new mood therapy, the clinically proven drug-free treatment for depression. And in that book, he talks about cognitive distortions. I prefer to think of them as unhelpful thinking patterns. Again, how we use our language is important. So there are 10 unhelpful thinking patterns that are really good to have so you can always question the thoughts that you're having to see, are these helpful or are these unhelpful? So I have the template. So you can email me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com, and I will be happy to send you this list of unhelpful thinking patterns, also known as cognitive distortions. So how do we learn to live with our emotions? How do we manage our emotions? How can we even be objective about our emotions and then have them better serve us? Well, it can be a daunting task to delve into the nuts and bolts of our emotions. One of the main reasons that for most of my life, I took drugs and alcohol to numb those negative emotions. But there's something about doing that because when I was numbing my negative emotions, I was also numbing my positive emotions. I no longer received the pleasure from things like going to weddings and going to family celebrations, dinners, uh, other celebrations. I just wanted to avoid it. I didn't get any level of pleasure from them at all. So the thing about numbing our heightened emotions is that it goes both ways. It's numbing the negative and the positive. 
And then a few years into my addiction recovery journey, I was reading more and more articles about the growing global epidemic of depression. Not only were depression statistics staggering, but the approach to treating depression was and still is being driven by the pharmaceutical industry that is experimenting with our brain's neurochemistry. Everybody I talk to is taking an antidepressant. I did for a long time as well. And this misguided approach to treating depression is still failing to address the multifactorial roots of depression. You've likely heard that the opposite of addiction is connection. And part of my own depression was definitely driven by a great deal of disconnection. I lived in a dysfunctional family unit. There was a lack of connection to people who could provide positive role models, mentorship. I was surrounded by people who were providing bad life examples. I felt a lack of purpose. I felt no sense of meaning. And then, of course, I ended up in this toxic uh, profession, perpetuating the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. It was the daily mandate of my job for 22 years. Drugs and alcohol, unfortunately, became the anesthetic through which I endured this operation of life. I managed to manage those addictions for several years, and I would seek you know, some Band-Aid solutions now and then through groups and self-help books. When I became an addiction recovery facilitator with SMART, self-management and recovery training, in 2018, I started to really delve into cognitive behavior therapy and really learning about the process of examining the thoughts I was having and learning how to intercept that negative narrative that runs in an endless loop in my head, to intercept it and start feeding it with more positive narratives that would serve my health and well-being. So I started to persistently ask myself the deeper questions that come with cognitive behavior therapy. And I learned that asking the right questions at the right time can change the course of life fairly quickly. So three questions worth asking that we do on uh, group meetings all the time is called the hierarchy of values, whereby you are encouraged to define your core values. It's not something we really take the time to do at any time in our life. So I really enjoy doing this in a group, especially because we all kind of uh, feed off of each other with our experiences and ideas. So we put together the core values on the hierarchy of values. And a lot of people can get an aha moment from that as well, because when you finish the HOV, the hierarchy of values, you realize that your addiction is nowhere to be seen on the list. However, the aha moment comes, well, I was putting my addiction on top of my hierarchy of values for most of my life. So why isn't it there? Because it was certainly one of the top priorities in my life. So a lot of people uh, get a lot of progress in doing these kinds of exercises. And then once you finish defining your core values, you're then encouraged to dig a little bit deeper. The three questions that are worth asking and answering, I think on a daily basis, what do I want? Question number two, what am I doing about it? <laughs> and question number three, how do I feel about what I'm doing about it? So when I keep myself accountable 
to make sure my actions are aligned with my values, I'm more likely to stay encouraged and motivated to do the work required to sustain my sobriety. I even eventually learned how to embrace failure as a course correction in my life. And that always seemed to bring with it some valuable learning opportunities, even the times where I lapsed in my sobriety and thought, oh, I can get away with just having a couple of lines of Coke or a couple of Percocet or a couple of glasses of wine. I would bounce back quickly. Thankfully, a lot of my friends didn't bounce back, which is what sent me on a path looking for something else that I could bring to my community. But once you consider that it's a lapse of judgment, it's a learning opportunity, and definitely every time I did lapse, it was a valuable learning opportunity. And now I consider the word fail an acronym, first attempt in learning. And I'm happy to say, since I became a facilitator with SMART in 2018, I have managed to stay on the wagon of life. I've uh, sustained my sobriety, thankfully. So what about cultivating the witness? We don't have time to get into that one. Uh, it's one of the four keys to higher consciousness. We're going to be covering that uh, on the next episode of Red Roof Recovery. Meanwhile, though, I would like you to reflect on what Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius pointed out. We all care about ourselves a lot, yet for some strange reason, we often value other people's opinions of ourselves, our actions, and our choices more than our own. Often we surrender to authority and accept the premise of arguments from people with no idea what they're talking about. When you get clear on what you want and what you don't want, you will build your resilience and your eventual competence will act as an armor against criticism and complaints. And it's not that you become egotistical or narcissistic or think that you're better than anyone else. You're building and developing your inner voice. You're learning to trust your intuition so you can rest easy in your decisions and move confidently in the work that you have in front of you. Become your own guru. Become a Stoic. Who knows what they're doing, right? They don't wing it. They don't react. You can uh, actually subscribe to dailystoic.com. I love the daily uh, emails that I get from there. So they have a process, the Stoics. It's good to learn from them. And this is just a better way to make decisions. It's also a better way to live with those decisions, no matter what the outcome is, even when they're misunderstood, even when they're doubted. You don't have time to care what other people think. You can't afford to spare the energy or the effort that's required to respond because you need every bit of your energy to get better, to make the next set of important decisions for your life. It's your opinion, your standards, your strategy, that you should care about the most. These are the things that are going to help you recover. So we've covered shut down the inner dialogue and banish doubt. So next we're gonna be tackling transcending our ego and cultivating the witness in upcoming episodes of the Red Roof Recovery Show. So I hope today's episode has helped open up some possibilities for you to banish doubt in your life. If you'd like to be a guest on the Red Roof Recovery Show, I would love to have you here. Or if you think you or someone you know might qualify for my unique residential recovery program, please email me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com. I've authored a couple of books. They're available on amazon.ca 
And I'm also happy to say that our local bookstore here in Godrich, Finchers in the Square in Canada's prettiest town, also carry my books. The first one is Mindful Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Sage Advice from a Single Father. It's a tribute to my dad who raised me and my baby sister back in the 60s while struggling with his own addictions. And uh, he was a remarkable guy and he deserves a legacy of greatness. The second one, I wanted to make a series of Philosopher Dad books. The second one is Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, some inspiration to guide your days. And that's exactly what it is. It's an inspirational message every day with a journal that you can reflect on some of those inspirational messages. So that's what I'm hoping you'll do because I have found that when you take a few minutes to do some contemplation every day, write your thoughts and intentions for the day, the power of words is magical. The power of the written word is not only magical, it's transformational. My wish for you is to live fully, purposefully, laugh often, love always, be mindful. Great power in knowing that the only thing we can control in our life is ourselves. May the force be with you and remember, you are the force.